welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. In fact, my hope is that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus, which provides working parents with support to combine big career dreams with young children. To get access to our free events, to our resources and further options of support, sign up on leadersplus.org forward slash newsletter. In this week's episode, I'm talking to Charlotte Hill about being a CEO and enjoying your young children, why it is worth becoming a CEO and how she manages the boundaries when she goes to late night networking events. Enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Charlotte, to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me to do it. I feel really pleased to be here. My name is Charlotte Hill and I am the chief executive of the Felix Project. We rescue surplus food, we sort it in our warehouses and we distribute it to community partners. We did about 30 million meals last year to Londoners most in need. So I do that as a charity CEO. And I live in South London in Peckham. And in my family is my other half, Dave, and my two children, Libby and Alfie, who are four and six. Wonderful. We're practically neighbours. I live in South East London as well in Lewisham. Ah, really around the corner. (laughs) Yes. So can you share with our listeners one thing that you used to believe about combining a big career with young children that you don't subscribe to anymore? Oh my goodness, I feel that there's so many things that before you're a parent, you believe. I guess I used to believe that it was really about logistical juggling, that it's about, you know, making sure that you've got the ability to get a child from A to B and to be at work when you need to or whatever. And what I in no way understood and now believe is actually it's much more about the emotional load of the kind of guilt of trying to do both all these things well and and actually even though logistics is hard the logistics is such a small element of it because actually for me it's the kind of emotion of it all that is the much harder piece so I think I just thought before having children this is just about being organized and what I've realized actually now I have two small children and I'm a chief executive is is it's way more than just being organized it's also about relationship management between me and my partner and how we do that really well so that one of us isn't endlessly pissed off with the other one and also yeah that kind of horrible guilt you sometimes have about not being able to be at that school play or you know not being able to do that pickup so yeah I realized that it's not just um it's not just a task list it's a big emotional burden and responsibility as well Mm. and your job in particularly is it's obviously very values driven and very needs driven in that you're providing a service that is absolutely essential. And we should say for our non-UK listeners that in the UK today, in 2023, people use food bank, people go hungry. I think, was it one in four children in London primary schools don't have enough to eat? And so, you know, it's not a job where you could say, well, actually, it doesn't really matter. Your job really does matter. So practically, what have you learned about dealing with that 
emotional load of wanting to be there for the kids, but also wanting to do your role well? Goodness, it's such a huge question and one that I don't know if I have the answer to. I guess I just feel like a big responsibility for both and really just desperately try and do my best on both sides. I think at work, what I learned early on was to just employ outstanding people and empower them to do their jobs brilliantly. And my job is there to enable them to do their jobs brilliantly. And therefore, I have to kind of make the decisions and decide what we're going to do, delegate it, and then get out of the way and let them do it brilliantly. And that also enables me to also be a parent. Um, So that's, I guess, how I try and do it. And hopefully, I'm a good and empowering boss in enabling people to do that. But also try and role model the fact that I actually do have to stop work at a particular time on particular days because I am going to pick up my children. That is possible to do being a female chief executive. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I um, manage either brilliantly, but I try and manage both as best I can. Mm. It's interesting what you're describing, because the way you're talking about yourself, it doesn't sound like you're someone who will get busy for the sake of being busy. And one, is that true? And two, is that something you had to learn or you were always good at saying, well, actually, no, I don't need to do this? One, it's not always true. And that's partly because I'm a massive extrovert. And therefore, I say yes to lots of things I could say no to, but because I know that I will love doing them. So the challenge I have, and it's definitely something I've learned as I've become a mum, is I know there are some things I have to say no to. But there are some things that I just want to say yes to because I know that, one, there is a great opportunity for my organisation in that event. It's particularly evening events, actually. Prior to becoming a mum, I had the luxury, and I now think of it as a luxury, of allowing a job I completely love to seep into all the different bits of my life. I've never thought of work as work because I've always had the lovely joy of doing jobs I completely, completely love. And I'm very purpose driven in what I do. And I feel really empowered that I'm making a massive difference in the world. And that's an absolute privilege to get to do. And so prior to having children, I would say yes to so many things that there were breakfasts and dinners and weekends and traveling and whatever it was. And I loved that. And so I think part of the reason why I've said, no, I'm not so brilliant at it is there's still a bit of me that wants to say yes to all those opportunities because I get a lot out of them. And I know my organisation gets a lot out of the networking opportunities and things that those events hold. So I have to, every few months, I kind of give myself a bit of a talking to because I've realised I've allowed the evening events to creep up to a slightly unacceptable level. (laughs) And then I'm like, no, must rein myself back in and not say yes to that dinner because I actually... It's too much for me to take on, but also it means I haven't seen the kids enough this week. Mm. And it's interesting that you're saying, I mean, I think you're the first open extrovert I'm interviewing for this podcast. Maybe people are... (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just interested in if you are going to these events and you are obviously doing less of it now, have you learned anything about making the most of them do you have top tips I've heard you know people sit in the front row is there anything that you do to make it oh my goodness I have so many brilliant female mentors who have supported me with this so there is the most amazing woman called Dame Julia Cleverdon who she's amazing yes also she chaired our employer strategy meeting yeah so she's wonderful she's how funny that you (laughs) she's been a mentor of mine for many many years and I always use this sentence which I remember her saying to me when I was a young and early in my career which is there's only one letter difference between networking and not working 
And it's so true. There's no point in going to a networking event if you don't actually really work the room and meet as many people as you can there and think about all of the different opportunities in that room because you don't know until you start talking to someone how they might be able to support the work that you're trying to do. And so I always think whenever I go into any room, even if I'm feeling a little bit tired, I think of Julia and there's only one letter difference between networking and not working and think, right, I'm going to make sure I get every ounce of value out of this room for the Felix project I possibly can. So I just always try and make sure, you know, to those things, you know, always asking questions, always speaking to people, always following up, always then thinking about how I can connect different people, use the room in as many different ways as I can. So I do, yeah, I am a pretty ruthless networker, but that does help that I'm an extrovert because I quite enjoy going into a room where I know nobody and going around and speaking to people. You get energy from it. I get a lot of energy. I wish I was you, Charlotte. That sounds amazing. (laughs) So just practically then, I'm intrigued. How do you do it? And I know for your organisation, you need stuff. You need money. I presume you need... We need volunteers, we need food. Yeah, a lot of it is about being out there. Do you actually, as a networking event, do you talk to people and try to be interested in them? Or it sounds like you are interested in them, which is even a better (laughs) (laughs) better thing. Or do you actually say and go and uh, approach the person who looks the most senior in that room and say, actually, we need some money here. Can you help? What do you do? No, I just go and talk to people because I'm genuinely interested in meeting new people. Like I genuinely love the like random interactions you get. I mean, I'm the person who chats to people on the bus, though. But also, you never know. As soon as I describe what we do as an organisation, most people will have some sort of connection to it or will understand why it's really powerful and it's really important. Or, you know, if I describe the things we need, we'll think about, you know what, maybe I could volunteer my time or maybe my organisation could get behind this or, you know, so there's lots of different ways people can support, which is really helpful. It's interesting you say how uh, this week, I was just thinking, I can't decide if this is the best week or the worst week to be doing this podcast because my husband is a primary school teacher and he this week is away on year six residential. So I'm completely solo parenting this week. Um, So I'm having to do every drop off and pick up that we normally kind of juggle between us. and then try and squeeze in like the bits of work I'm missing after the kids are asleep in the evenings. And so this week feels particularly fraught in terms of being able to do my job and also be a parent. But it's made me have deep awe, as it always does when Dave's away, for um, people who do this on their own all the time. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And can you just say something about the practicality? So do you work part-time or full-time? How you? No, I work full-time. Normally, this week is unusual because Dave being away, normally I work out across, we've got four depots, I rotate around those depots four days a week, and then Fridays I work from home. So on Fridays, that's a day I definitely drop off the kids and pick them up at 3.30. So I have a shorter day on a Friday. I do normally then dip back into work in the evenings, but I drop off and pick up on a Friday, and then we juggle it between us in the week, basically. So I do fewer pickups, but I do more drop-offs we have a mixture of after school club breakfast club mum and dad it's the you know we made a decision not to try and have a nanny or childminder or anything because I'd always done UK wide or international jobs and then lockdown hit and very long story but it meant I saw a lot more of the children like I was breastfeeding Alfie I was going back from maternity leave and after that I'd had a period there where I could be at home and see them a lot more because I was working from home 
And so Dave said to me after that, why don't you look for a London-based job rather than a chief executive? Because I'd always travelled a lot and therefore had not really seen, I'd missed a lot of bed and bath times. And so I applied for the Felix Project, which is just a London-based organisation. And it's made a massive difference because I'd never be able to do the drop-offs and pickups that I do if I was being in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland all week, which is what I used to do all the time. So I definitely have a different choice of the role I'm doing, even though it's still a full-on job, because of its geographical location, I'm not travelling as much, which made a massive difference. I made that choice. It took nine rounds of IVF to have my two kids. So it took us like nearly 10 years of trying to have them. And so I always think, do you know what? I didn't go through all of that to have these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful children and then literally never see them. So I was never going to compromise my career because I love being a chief executive. I love running an organisation. I love what I do. But I have managed to find an organisation that means geographically, at least, I know I can get home every night and I can see my children. And I agreed with the kind of board when I took the job that part of the deal of me taking it was that I wanted to be able to drop them off some days to school and that I would make it work. And were you ever tempted to choose? So have you ever had fantasies or moments where you were close to saying, well, actually, no, I'm going to stop working for years? Or was it always clear that you were going to try to have a family? Or were you thinking, well, actually, maybe just let's not bother with hassle of trying to have kids? I always knew I wanted, both of us really wanted to have children. So, and we had to be blooming determined because we, there was a very long time where we were just told we never could. Anyway, so I always knew I wanted to, and I'm a pretty determined person. So I was like, we're going to try every single thing we possibly can. Um, I am incredibly fortunate that, I shouldn't say fortunate, actually, this should be how our country works. We did shared parental leave with both of my children. So I did six months off and then Dave did 18 months off with each of them. So I was at home until they were six months and then Dave was at home until they were two. And we did that with both children. So he was able to take career breaks just in the way his career was. So actually until Nibby was four, they had a parent at home full time the entire time. And I know that shared parental leave is not something everybody can take up for financial reasons or whatever it is, but it has been a game changer in how we co-parent because we genuinely co-parent. You know, lots of my friends who are mums who have got full on jobs also still do like 75, 80 percent of like the life admin, the children admin, the all of those things. I genuinely am in a team with a partner who actually probably does more than I do and of course I would have had the choice to not work but actually I'm the main breadwinner in our house and so if one of us was to not work it would probably have to financially be my husband rather than me so that's the way we've made it work and I think everybody kind of finds their own way of making it work in their home. Absolutely it's different for everyone but I think the scenario that you are describing where both parents regardless of the gender are equal in this is something a lot of people listening will be aspiring to it doesn't work for everyone for whatever reason but if you look back on how you set it up what are the top three practical things or processes or ways of working quotation marks that you have that enables you both to be equally leaders in the family I mean this is not a thing that's a practical tip for anyone else but my husband having a career change. So in our 20s, we both had very, very full on careers. He worked in advertising and marketing. And 
his kind of decision in his 30s to go back to university and retrain and become a primary school teacher was a complete game changer because I look at lots of my friends for whom the school holidays are a horrendous childcare juggle. And actually, one of the things that means that we have a very firm basis of co-parenting is that during the school holidays, Dave has the children all the time. And that's a big old chunk of the year. So I think there's something around the fact that he had a career change that meant he had a career that enabled him to genuinely be an equal partner in the parenting rather than things naturally falling to me because I'd been on maternity leave. So I do think there is something around in those very early months of becoming a parent if you can do shared parental leave, it becomes such a leveller for the rest of your time of being a parent, because otherwise those things just naturally stay with the person who took the year's maternity leave and just never even out going back to the. So I think the very practical thing of just doing shared parental leave, if you possibly can, I think is a huge thing. And then I think beyond that, we just have a really clear like division of tasks and there are certain things I'm responsible for and there are certain things he's responsible for, but we've kind of leveled it out so they are genuinely even. So having that kind of clear allocation of things. And then I guess the third thing is not so practical, but it's just like both having massive respect for what each other do. I'm deeply in awe of the role he plays as an inner city state school, primary school teacher. He deals with incredible challenges day in day out and is responsible for shaping amazing young lives and so I think the fact that we both really respect what each other do and respect the value of it and respect the fact that therefore we've got to figure out a way to not resent each other when you know someone's got to make a compromise somewhere along the line no one's job is more important than the other person's and it's just about trying to just be as fair and honest as you can around yeah both taking your even share of both the opportunities and the challenges. Mm, absolutely. I hope the podcast is really useful to you so far. Feel free to let me know with a LinkedIn message if you have any feedback or suggestions. I wanted to have a quick interruption here to invite you to get involved and become part of the real life community of people and working parents at Leaders Plus. One way to do so is if you are a senior leader, someone at director or partner level or above, and who have lived experience of combining a big career with young children, I would love it if you would consider applying to be a senior leader mentor to one of our Leaders Plus fellows, our working parents on our fellowship program. To get involved, you go on leadersplus.org forward slash mentors. Likewise, if you are working parents and would like support from one of those amazing senior leader mentors, then you can do so by applying to join our fellowship program. All the details are on our website. At the moment, applications aren't open yet, but if you register interest, so leadersplus.org forward slash register interest, we will then send you an email once the applications are open. You'll get obviously senior leader mentor, you get a really inspirational tight-knit support group a small support group of other working parents and you get structured support and time to think through a world-class facilitator and also i'll have a chance to get to know you hopefully throughout the program any questions or any suggestions let me know also there are lots of free events on the leaders plus website if you want to get involved in those i'm interested in talking to you about you being a ceo what do you think 
I guess, can you recommend being a CEO to working parents? Is it something, obviously I have an agenda here, yeah. but you know, is it something that you would encourage our listeners to consider? Oh God, I totally would. Why? And I would honestly say, so a couple of things. One, you can really role model what it is being a parent and being a chief executive. And that sets the tone for your entire organisation. And therefore, you have the ability to create an organisation or a business or a workforce or a company in whatever form you are a chief executive that empowers and enables other people to be able to be better working parents and have more flexibility and all of those things. So there's something I think that's really yeah, a privilege about getting to do that as, a, as the leader of an organisation. I do also think, I remember when we were thinking about trying to have children and things, I remember almost not going for a couple of jobs because I thought, this was like way back in my like 20s, because I thought, goodness, I might be about to be having a child. Maybe I shouldn't go for that. So I became a chief exec at 29, which was crazy early. Like I didn't expect it, it was an accident. But anyway, I very nearly didn't go for that job because I was thinking, I'm newly married. I'll be thinking about having a child. Maybe I shouldn't. Dear God, thank God I didn't listen to myself because it took another 10 years for me to have children because of all the fertility challenges we had. And if I'd effectively put my career on hold from the moment I got married thinking, oh, I might have a baby, I would have literally not in any way realised my potential as an employee I would have done a disservice to myself, but I would have done a disservice to the organisations that I've worked in because I'd have been basically holding myself back from being able to contribute fully in lots of different ways. But I think it's what a lot of people do. I think a lot of people, women particularly, in their 20s or whatever, think, well, at some stage I want to have a baby, so I best not go for that big job because what if I then get pregnant or how will I manage work or whatever? First of all, you never know if you're going to be able to have that baby or when it's going to happen or all of those things. But second of all, it is totally possible to do big jobs and also have children. I was a chief exec for a long time whilst doing IVF. And actually, weirdly, that was harder than it was than being a chief exec and having children because you're on a crazy emotional roller coaster. You're dealing with so many different emotional and also juggling all sorts of different appointments and things so I often say actually being a CEO and a parent is easier than being a CEO whilst doing IVF and that's also something for employers to think about like the massive challenges people have when they're going through fertility treatment. Yeah I can imagine so you've obviously kept going you didn't resign from your CEO role. No. So what did you do to make sure that it keeps that you were able to cope in that really tough situation of the emotional roller coaster that comes with IVF and still having a really big job? I think, again, I can't speak for anyone other than myself, but the idea of not working whilst doing IVF is much worse for me than the idea of working whilst doing IVF because I'd be like, goodness, if I don't have my job to focus on, all I'm going to think about all the time is IVF. Um, so actually for me, because I'm able to compartmentalise very well, being able to actually put that thing away over here and focus on being a chief executive for 90% of the time was hugely, hugely helpful. And I think it was helpful on a number of ways. One, having something else to throw myself into rather than being defined by a person who's basically doing fertility treatment is really important. But also, there was a big part emotionally for me that felt like I was a failure in not being able to have children. And therefore, not being defined as a failure by being a really good kick-ass chief executive and by being really successful 
also really emotionally helped me because I was like, do you know what? I might be rubbish at this, but I'm really, really good at this. So let's focus on doing this really well. And so it really helped me, actually. And I think I would have gone crazy if I'd just not worked and focused on doing fertility treatment all the time. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. Now, having a family, um, you strike me as someone who you said you love going out, not out. I'm not sure your life's probably not full of party, but you love being (laughs) present with people, meeting people and so on and so forth. What's your approach to setting boundaries? Do you set boundaries or in reality, actually, you don't and you just play it by ear a little bit and that's okay with you? I do set boundaries, but those boundaries are based on the routine. So basically the routine that I know on a Monday, Thursday and Friday, I do drop off. And therefore I sit around the table and I have breakfast with my children on those three days and I get them ready for school and all of those things. And we walk to school together. So that's a very clear boundary because that is a committed routine that they love. And then similarly, the boundaries around knowing that I definitely am going to do pick up on a Friday and that we're all going to sit and have dinner together on a Friday night. And, you know, I definitely take my daughter to ballet on a Saturday morning. I guess it's routine that creates those boundaries for me. And I know the most important structure for little children is routine. You know, my children chant, like they've only just turned four and six, but like on a Thursday night, they're like, it's Friday tomorrow. And they're like, mommy does drop off and pick (laughs) up. And so those things, I think, enforce the boundary because I am not going to let them down. And those routines are really important to them. And that structure is really important. And therefore, that kind of enforces a boundary. Um, I also say to my colleagues a lot, which is, I choose to work flexibly. And so I choose to do drop off some mornings and pick up or whatever, which means I'm going to work funny hours. So I choose to then work in the evenings and pick up some stuff in the evenings where I you know, haven't finished it in the day. And so I think just kind of role modeling and having that flexibility around saying, look, my boundaries are going to be different from yours. The way I choose to work is going to be different from yours. I don't expect you to in any way respond to anything I send outside the working hours. But this is why I'm doing it. This is what it enables me to do. And this is how I also hope you feel empowered to also work. Mm, Brilliant. And do you think having children changed you as a leader? Definitely. I think empathy is the most important thing you can have as a leader. I always think going into any meeting, whether it's with a colleague, whether it's with a volunteer, whether it's with a business partner, whether it's with a funder, whoever it is, you don't know what sort of day that person is walking into your meeting from. And I think there's something around being a parent and actually having done IVF before and lots of other things in my life. It's not just being a parent that I bring to leadership, which is I'd always just think, goodness, I try and imagine how that person's feeling and have a bit of empathy for them. So I think it really helps with empathy. And I do think it really helps with kind of understanding the need for boundaries. So, you know, the fact that I know I have to leave at particular times on particular days definitely makes you understand other people's boundaries which they may be setting for very different reasons around work I think it means I'm a bit more respectful of that whereas in my 20s you know the idea that I would work really really late and and also and maybe it was because it was a slightly different time but that lots of the networking and the career development opportunities were in the evenings and I guess that's another thing I try and do more now which is be respectful of the fact that for lots of people those evening things or breakfast things or whatever just don't work because of parenting responsibilities. So I guess it's maybe a bit more thoughtful, I guess, as a leader around trying to make sure we work as far as possible in a way that's inclusive. That means that different people from different backgrounds with different caring responsibilities can still play a really meaningful part in our organisation. Brilliant. 
And for anyone who is listening to you and wants to consider becoming a CEO, but has no clue whether they think they have the potential, how would they know that they should consider it? How do you know that you might have the potential to be a CEO? So I think there's something around the fact that I had been on the board of organisations before becoming a chief executive that really helps. So I would always massively say to people, it doesn't have to be a NED position, it can be a volunteer trustee, go and sit on a trustee board, because what you will do as part of that is really see how a chief executive runs an organisation, because you'll effectively be their board, you'll see how the cycle of, you know, running an organisation works, of reporting, of all of those different things, of running budgets, of all of those things. I found it hugely helpful having sat on boards before becoming a chief executive, because it gives you a proper understanding and insight of what it actually is to run an organisation. So I would first of all say, go and become a trustee of a charity, whether it's locally or nationally or whatever it is. If you're thinking about doing it, it's a great way to get exposure to running something. I also think go and chat to some chief executives. Like everybody does it differently. Everybody has their own way of doing it and style and so on. So just go and have a coffee with some people or chat to people. But broadly speaking, you've got to, well, for me anyway, you've got to find, and it's different, I guess, in the voluntary sector maybe than being a chief executive in other sectors. You've got to find something you really care about, that you really want to dedicate a huge amount of your life to doing. And yeah, just think about all of the different things you could bring to that organisation. But I love being a chief executive. I honestly, it's not just because of my organisation and what we do. The job itself is a huge, huge privilege to get to do because you get to see every bit of your organisation in a way that very few other people do. You know, I sit you know, and manage people who run every single bit of our organisation and it's so amazing to see all of the different elements of it and, and to be part of coordinating all of that and how it all works together. Um, yeah, it's a brilliant, it's an amazing job. Wonderful. That's a strong call to action to consider applying for a CEO role. And at the moment, there are not that many CEOs, even in the charity sector, actually, that don't look like a rich, hetero, white male, um, middle class and so on. And I just wonder about your reflections. Obviously, in the charity sector, there are more female CEOs, especially when you look at the smaller charities. However, if you look at the workforce, it's hugely female dominated. It's very, very skewed. And I just, I'm curious in whether you have a theory about what needs to change in order for more women like you to become CEOs. Definitely something around the parenting model that does need to change. So it is so expensive to put your children into full-time childcare and the uptake of shared parental leave and those sorts of things has not moved forward as quickly as we'd like to. So I think there's something around just the structure around parenting that still means that it's harder for women to think they can do it and sometimes to practically do it. So there's some of those kind of structural things. I do also think, so I worked in Westminster um, under the Labour government a long time ago now. This is when they did all women's shortlists. So I remember when I first worked in Westminster, there was a very small fraction of female MPs. And the kind of when New Labour came in, one of the things they said they were going to do was do basically positive discrimination, saying each time a seat comes up, we're only going to have all women shortlists. And because they did that, we saw a huge shift in what would have probably taken hundreds of years of change to happen 
we saw happen in 10 years for the number of women who basically came into and, and were members of parliament because of that. So there's something for me around how we really like we have to do that. So that's why I'm really pro the kind of quota system of trying to get more women on boards and things, because there is something about having to see women in leadership positions that then inspires other women to think they can do it. So I think the more women we can get onto boards, the more women we can get into leadership positions, very visible leadership positions, the more younger women will believe that actually this is something they can do. And it's one of the reasons why I try and really openly talk about things like fertility treatment or the fact, you know, at my work, I very openly talk about the fact I'm doing drop off and pick up and that I'm not going to be able to join a meeting until 9.30 because I'm dropping off the children. I think being very visible as a female leader in saying those things and in talking about it and in saying it is possible, that then there are younger women in my organisation who now will think, actually, I could do this, like from a very practical point of view I shouldn't be putting barriers in my way I can do this so I think it's there is something around kind of having very visible female leadership um, and promoting women that is really important Mm, absolutely and I don't know if I've told you but we have a fellowship program that focuses on working parent but it's 90% women and the reason why I'm so excited about it is because it really does get people promoted. And apparently there's so it was 60% or so of the last cohort did get into a more senior role, which is wonderful given well their done. I'm really, really happy about it. But I think the interesting thing is that Deloitte said did some research and apparently each woman who is promoted into a more senior role increases the likelihood of three more women coming up behind yeah. her on the level below. And that's why what you're saying is so important. We have to do that and we have to turn the right screws to change that and thank you for what you're doing there with being open about it my senior leadership team now is mainly women and it was mainly men before there is something i think around kind of yeah female leaders promoting female leaders that's Mm. really important exactly and this whole idea in the media about queen what what is it called queen b you know that women push other people away i think that's almost a misogynistic trope yeah. that gets repeated again and again which is um yeah, yeah not it's my good. experience no not my experience at all not at all not at all so we're coming to end of our time together would you like to share one or two practical things that someone who has heard you speak and is actually motivated now to become a ceo what they could do this week in five minutes to start the process well the first thing i've mentioned already which is go and become a trustee honestly it is such a great way to build your networks it is such a great way to kind of build your understanding and leadership of organisations and understanding governance and understanding all of those things. So first of all, if you're not one already, go and find something you really care about and knock on their door and see if they're looking for a trustee or start the process of looking for a trustee role. And then the other thing, which, again, I think lots of people say is I have the most amazing mentors who support me and have supported me, some of them for many years. Julia Cleverden is a great example. Um Make sure you have these great sponsors and mentors in your life who can help you think about those different opportunities. I think that's the real key is try and think about, yeah, what your support network is, who those people around you who can find opportunities for you, as well as getting a trustee role. And where can people find out about your work and how can they support the FedEx project? How can they find out about how to get involved? We would love anyone listening who wants to get involved. We are www.thefelixproject.org. Go and have a look at what we do. We need three things to do what we do. We need money, we need volunteers, and we need food. So if you think you can either give your time or 
you or your organization give funding or you work in the food industry or have connections in the food industry and can help us get surplus food those are the things we need we always say we're an organization by Londoners for Londoners so we have about 12,000 people who come and volunteer every year so please please whether you're a corporate who could bring a corporate volunteering team or an individual we would love to have you be part of the Felix community and help us move towards a London where no good food is wasted and no Londoner goes hungry. Wonderful thank you so much Charlotte brilliant to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. I always love hearing from listeners. So if you've listened and enjoyed it, please do connect with me on LinkedIn. I would really enjoy to hear what you thought of the show. I always love having podcast listeners join the fellowship program or getting involved in other ways. So if you're interested in that, then please sign up on leadersplus.org forward slash register interest and we'll keep you in the loop when the applications open again. And thank you so much to all the listeners who've taken time to share the podcast with friends or to rate it on your podcast listening app. In the last few weeks, the podcast listener numbers have really gone up. And that's quite important because at the moment, podcasting is still an area that is really dominated by men, especially if you look at the top charting podcasts. They're often led by men. And I think it just shows that there's another area where we have to push through and create greater equality. And so thank you so much for sharing it and trying to uh, (laughs) give give voice to a woman-led podcast. I really appreciate it. See you next week.